0: 90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science.
1: Hey, Shannon, how are you?
0: Pretty good. My last final was done today. Now the slog of grading, which I know I complained about a lot, but I really hate it.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's... It's a lot of work.
0: And I refuse to do Scantrons because I don't think that helps people learn. So there we go. I will pay for it this weekend, and it will be me and Netflix and my red pen. So,
1: (laughs) (laughs) Show title right there. Exactly.
0: (laughs) But you're doing something much more exciting, right? (laughs) Uh,
1: Yeah, so I am in San Francisco. I'm actually sitting in a hotel room again. uh, (laughs) This is the second one in a row. It's been from a hotel room. Uh, So you'll probably hear lots of noise outside because there's sirens continuously in the streets right below. Uh, So I'm sitting here hand-holding the mic uh, (laughs) at the hotel desk. Uh, But I am here for the American Geophysical Union fall meeting, uh, which I've come to this meeting every year since I think it was 2009 uh, when Mm -hmm. I was an undergraduate. So it's a a really huge meeting and a lot of fun.
0: It's massive. Um, I'm missing it this year, Um, but it's it's like nerd Mecca is how I think of this. Like all the nerds like travel to San Francisco, um, come this time in December most years. Well, at least the nerds we hang out with. Right. Um, to, to attend the geophysical meetings. So there's lots of geophysicists, geologists, atmospheric scientists. Um, and it's how, how many people are there this year? Do you know?
1: Uh, So last I heard was somewhere around twenty five thousand. It's all—it's always in the mid to low twenty thousands, though.
0: Yeah, that is unbelievable.
1: (laughs) And so we actually a part of AGU is every afternoon. So every morning there's coffee breaks, and every afternoon they have beer breaks. And uh, one of the breweries around here actually brewed a beer specifically for AGU. AGU Lager this year that they've been serving.
0: Oh, that's excellent. Um, I know at the. Geological Society of America, their 125th annual meeting um, last year, they had a special brew beard for them, which was called Field Assistant Brew, which I thought was pretty spectacular.
1: Yeah, <laughs> but no, it's it's a huge meeting, and it's been an absolutely exhausting week. Uh, we were talking a little bit before the show, and you know, tomorrow's the last day, uh, the day this airs. Which is good, because I don't know if I could do it much longer. My feet are killing me.
0: (laughs) Uh, Yeah, it's a lot of walking. Uh, I remember uh, when I was there last year, I stayed up on top of the hill, and I was like, oh, this is a great view, but then at the end of the day, having to slog back up that (laughs) that hill, that was a bad idea.
1: Yeah, I'm not even that far from the convention center, but you're on your feet pretty much all day.
0: Well, and the convention Um, center is massive, so...
1: I mean, it's three buildings.
0: Right. (laughs) Yeah.
1: So there's uh, posters going on. There's no telling how many talks going on concurrently, at least in the mid to high tens, probably. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then there's the exhibit hall where, you know, vendors and schools and that kind of thing have booths set up. And there's never a lack of things to do.
0: (laughs) Uh, Yeah, exactly. I thought we could sort of take this time... um to sort of tell some of our listeners who don't go to scientific meetings, like what they're all about and why they're so important. Because, I mean, this is one of, this is something you look forward to, you know, all year, basically. But not only just looking forward to it, but this is where we go to do a whole lot of things, you know, present our research, meet our colleagues. And they're the crux of sort of how we interact with each other as scientists, I feel like.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, publishing papers is one way, but there's nothing compared to going up to somebody that's published a paper and directly talking to them about the results and asking them questions and having a face to face interaction. It also helps, you know, humanize our science because it is ultimately a human endeavor.
0: Uh, right, exactly. Um <laughs> we talk so much about how, um, you know, you never know when you're gonna get inspiration and you said you're exhausted, but I know that you've definitely probably thought of a lot of new ideas while you were there i'm sure you wrote them down in your field notes notebook
1: i, I was going to say you know fancy notebook uh almost completely filled by the end of this week oh, i'm actually excellent. using one of the uh um, i don't know if we one of the uh, fancy french or italian notebooks i guess italian um <laughs> that's a little bit thicker it's got some more pages in it than the field notes so i could have it all in one notebook for the meeting
0: uh, that, that is a ton of ideas
1: yeah no it, it's <laughs> many many pages of things written down probably about a page of notes per talk that i've gone to
0: uh that's impressive um so there's these talks where people are presenting their researches uh and we're going to talk about that and then posters is another way so we'll talk about that um and then these meetings a really big part just like you said the human part i met so many you know new people at the last geological society of america meeting uh, plus you know renewing all your old contacts and these collaborations are the very foundation of what we do and it's so much fun um i really love it you never know you know who's working on what and you meet someone that's working on something that you do and it's always really exciting to sit there and be like oh i've seen that rock too <laughs> 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 you know
1: well and- <laughs> I mean, the magic doesn't necessarily happen during the meeting. So during the meeting is where the science happens, and we talk about science ideas. The magic happens at lunch and after the meeting's over, when you go out and get dinner with folks.
0: Yeah, that's that is for sure. Um, and there's all kinds of different, you know, we say there's twenty five thousand people at that meeting. That's that's crazy. But you know, the the part, the small chunk of geophysics that you do. You know, you will interact with those people a lot. And so while it is overwhelming, you know, you have your little group, basically, that research roughly the same things you do. And, you know, there's all kinds of sectional meetings, too, because people like in AGU, I'm a part of the, um, you know, magnetism, basically paleomagnetism uh, subsection, you know, so we'll have our annual meeting at AGU. In addition to the big AGU meeting. And so there's all kinds of those planetary, you know, tectonophysics, everything like that.
1: Town hall meetings, sometimes in the afternoons.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, Uh, Women in science uh, meetings. There's all kinds of student organizations too that have little subsets meetings, breakfast, lunch, and it's a lot of fun. And there's usually a really big name that comes to AGU to speak, right?
1: Yeah, so they have several named lectures. Uh, that are people that are specifically, you know, in the field, like there's a seismology lecture, there's a geodesy lecture. But then the big one this year, the one that I was the most excited about was Elon Musk giving the presidential lecture, which is part of the union section.
0: Oh, that's pretty awesome. I don't know if it's as awesome as seeing Bill Nye. I'm gonna throw that out there.
1: Yeah, so unfortunately, I actually got to see Bill Nye.
0: (laughs) Not Uh, (laughs) so with uh, Elon Musk, I guess.
1: No, so I went about an hour before the lecture started, and the line was already snaking. If you've ever been to this convention center, it was going between buildings underground. Oh, wow. And we were informed that the line had already been cut off, uh, so we couldn't get in it. And as it turns out, not everybody that was in the line before they cut it off even got into the lecture hall.
0: Oh, that's a bummer.
1: So the talk was supposed to be recorded, so I'm looking forward to watching it you know, after it's already happened. And I went up and sat in an actually really good session on earthquake physics that was sitting pretty much directly above where he was standing. So it's close. <laughs> so uh, you
0: connected <laughs> on some possibly
1: subatomic <laughs> level. <laughs> the the other great thing about it was, though, I got to sit in a Tesla Model S.
0: <laughs> oh, seriously?
1: Not yeah, that. they they had, uh, there were a couple of Model S's parked out front. And then there was a Model S that was actually in no idea how it got there. Downstairs in the convention center.
0: Uh, <laughs> Aren't they tiny? Somebody probably just carried it in.
1: Uh, no, I mean, it's a full-size car. Oh, um, wow. I thought it was It's, it's like small. a full-size sports car. No, it's oh, huge. Oh, nice. Um, and, yep, so I got to sit in it. It's an amazing car. The only actual physical button in the entire thing is the emergency flasher button because that's required by law. <laughs> Everything else is on a 17-inch touchscreen in the center.
0: Oh, that is... Awful and terrifying. Um, and
1: um, you know, if if I don't eat or pay rent for five <laughs> years, I I could I could have one.
0: I was just gonna say, uh, maybe if you're not, you know, going into your chosen field of academics, but uh, <laughs> right, <laughs> it's just like dangling it in front of people. See, if you went into a real thing, you could do this. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but no, it was uh, absolutely fascinating. One thing also that is different this year at AGU. Uh, actually should have taken this off before we started recording, but I still have my name badge on. And they've uh, changed no. the name badge holders and they do this. Okay. They they jingle. Oh. Because they're they're a different design clip than normal. So generally in the sessions it sounds like there's a, a pack of wild dogs <laughs> at the back.
0: <laughs> Maybe it's just like Christmas bells faintly yeah. in the background, right? That's what they're Yeah exactly. Uh, that's <laughs> weird. There's always the worst I mean you figure name badges, we'd kind of have a handle on, like, what the best thing to do is. But it seems like it's different every meeting. And this last meeting at GSA, they didn't even hand out lanyards. So you just, yeah, it's kind of disappointing. Huh.
1: Yeah. Yeah. But. But. Mm. So we've talked about getting struck by inspiration. And I said, you know, a lot of it happens afterwards. For example, had um, I had dinner with the folks that develop OBSPy, uh, the the Python seismological package, last night. Oh, Wow. Great conversations about uh, nine Python nerds went out. We <laughs> went to a assume... local installation and had some burgers and beer.
0: Uh, well, yeah, of course. Um, I'm assuming you're a heavy user of that software.
1: I, I am uh, heavy user <laughs> heavy user of Python and also ObsPy to some extent. So it was really great to get to talk with folks that are as passionate about it. Uh, but yeah, so I mean, I don't know how all of this compares. Uh, to your experiences at maybe some smaller meetings like GSA,
0: yeah, rub it in—it's smaller. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean it's the same thing. It's just on—it's just on a bigger scale, literally. Um, the cool thing about you know any of these meetings, no matter how small, and I'm sure you've been to these too. You know, I've been to meetings that take place in tiny little hotel ballrooms. Um, you know where there's oh yeah fifty people that are at the entire meeting, and. The coolest thing, you know, we talk about, you never know where you're going to be struck by inspiration. You know, you could be reading this fiction book and you start to think of something. But the cool thing about these meetings is, like, you know you're always going to be inspired if you go to them. So no matter how small or big, I feel like you still get the same benefit generally from them.
1: Yeah, because you're around a group of people that are very excited. And for a lot of times for the smaller meetings, some of them that I've been to, they actually – Pretty much seclude you in a remote location, <laughs>
0: yes. <laughs> uh, where
1: all you can do is talk to each other, and it turns uh, out to be right. really good.
0: Uh, yeah, it, it sounds horrifying when you say it like that, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but no, it is. It's really true. Um, you get to, you know, see that these people who maybe as a student you sort of idolize, and are very intimidated by, the more you interact and actually meet them, you realize these are just people too. So that's actually a good thing too, because I know. You know, my first (laughs) AGU used to have spring meetings and they would be all over the place. So their fall meetings usually, well, it's always in San Francisco, Um, right? but they used to have spring meetings. And I remember the first one that I went to by myself was in Montreal and my advisor didn't come with me and I had a poster. So I was nervous because at poster sessions, you know, they usually last for a couple of hours. You're standing at your poster for a while. So people can really grill you about it if they choose to. And I remember some, right. somebody made me cry. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I had to leave my poster and get it together <laughs> and come back. And while it was awful when it happened there, you know, it's super, it was a really good experience looking back on now, you know, I was just scared and I was the student and actually just a few years ago I was at a meeting in Brazil, an HEU meeting, um, where this guy was at and of course he didn't remember this he didn't know he made me cry he felt awful but you know as I interacted more you realize these people are just people too and you know while they are super brilliant they're still humans so (laughs) it's hard I think (laughs) to remember that as a student Um, so it's really important I think for students to attend these meetings and I know a good percentage of the GSA attendees are generally students I'm not sure about AGU
1: yeah, I'm not sure about AGU either. We were talking about writing an article for their newspaper called EOS uh, about that, but it seems to be pretty hard to get the numbers. Uh, I'm sure somebody mm-hmm. has them, but finding that somebody in an organization as large as AGU isn't trivial.
0: Uh, yes, <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. Um, they have quite the uh, quite the mechanism behind the curtain I feel uh, like. Y- <laughs> oh, yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah.
1: I mean, it, I'm sure it's a, a logistics nightmare to try to put a meeting like this together. But it really does help you see. I mean, there are people that this is the only time that I share a meal with them over the course of an entire year. But we may continue corresponding you know, through Skype or email or whatever. But it really helps to be able to sit down, you know, shake their hand, draw on the same notebook, and just have that connection.
0: Right. Right. Exactly. Um, yeah. Emails and Skype are great. And, you know, Skype has really changed how we do science a lot, I think, just because it's so much easier to access people. Um, but nothing compares. You're absolutely right to sitting down, you know, hopefully over an excellent microbrew that's local (laughs) and talking about your science. Um, there's other stuff to do at these meetings too. So we've got, you know, basically talks and posters and, there's also, especially at GSA, short courses, which are basically little classes or field trips that take place before or after the meetings. And those are, they cost a little bit more um, because obviously there's some more work that goes into them. But some of those are just fantastic because you not only meet people, but you get to learn a lot about the area. I mean, with GSA, obviously, it's a lot about geology of the area that the, the annual meeting is in, which changes every year. So it's really excellent
1: yeah and they do have a few short courses associated with AGU along with a a host of luncheons and informal gatherings of people walking to go see you know the nearest uh, the nearest fault outcrop or the nearest outcrop of something else that they're interested in Mm -hmm. uh, that people just informally meet up and take the bus somewhere together
0: uh yeah and those are I mean you can meet people on there too this whole thing is like one big networking week right Um, So you can meet a lot of people that obviously share your same interest there, too. Um, I made a great connection at GSA this year with um, one of my colleagues. He took a field course from these two professors that taught out in New Mexico, and New Mexico is one place that's close by, and I'm always looking for new field places for um, my students. And so it was great. Like after GSA, he put together this big Dropbox folder for us, full of all his info. He was super great at sharing it. You know, we sat down and talked for quite some time, and it's just like those are invaluable. You know, that could change the way that I teach my class just from this sort of chance meeting at um, at my poster during GSA. So.
1: Oh yeah, I mean those those connections really do just happen everywhere. Or you see somebody that's working on something similar. And, you know, you get to have a, a really great conversation and find out that what you're doing has a lot in common and complements each other really well.
0: Right, exactly. And, you know, the, just surfing it around in a journal, yeah, you could find that, but how much are you, you know, missing? Um, but so we keep talking about finding these people, but how do you find these people? Um and I think it's really when you're presenting your research that sort of attracts people that are interested in what you do as well and helps to make these connections. And as we talked before, this could be in either poster or talk form. So for people who don't go to these meetings, you know, what, does, what does that mean? What does doing a poster <laughs> or doing a talk mean?
1: Well, so generally, when you think of doing a talk, you think of something that's pretty long, right. uh, like a 45-minute normal colloquium or something. Here, you have 12 minutes, and then there are three minutes for questions and speaker change, which means that folks generally go for about 14 and a half minutes. Uh, <laughs> they try to pack as much in there as they can, and there's not really any time for questions.
0: Uh, I was going to say, that half minute is really important, actually, because just like John said, you try to pack in as much as you can, because you want to show you know as much of your research as possible, but then you still want to talk to people about it too.
1: Yeah, and also there are generally, at least here, eight of these talks in packets. So you have a couple hours and then a break for coffee or beer, depending on whether it's morning or afternoon, and then another eight talks. So a total of 32 that you could go to in a row. But generally you don't. You'll go to a session in the morning and then say go to their poster session in the afternoon on the same topic, but the people that did not give talks will give posters.
0: Right, exactly. And I know you did this year. You chaired a session. I chaired a session my first time last year, um, which is really fun because you are the person who gets to sort of look at everybody's research um, from these abstracts that people have sent in you know, months beforehand and choose, you know, this. these people are going to give talks and then these people are going to be in the accompanying poster sessions. And depending on the topic, I mean, you can have a full day of talks, just these little Just a morning or an afternoon session, or I saw one on the Colorado River last year that was two full days long, in addition to the poster (laughs) sessions. Yeah. Um, And then a lot of times they'll have talks that honor somebody, usually somebody that's retiring. And I've been to a lot of those in the last couple of years just because, you know, there are people who have been my professors and things like this that are retiring. And they'll have sort of honorary talks where a bunch of their students will come and you know, give presentations, and I always think those are really neat, too.
1: Yeah, and well, I will say that doing talks, I, I like it because, one, I do enjoy doing public speaking. I mean, obviously, we, we have a <laughs> podcast, uh, <laughs> so I do enjoy that, and I like being able to, you know, tinker with my slides, and then I have something that I can use again and again, basically, and, and piece pieces of it anyway. Right. Uh, with the posters, you have this huge poster tube and you take it on an airplane and you put it in the bin and then somebody takes their roller bag and proceeds to crush it. <laughs> and then somebody else tries to fit their roller bag on top of that one. And <laughs> it, it ends up being rough and you have to manage this tube the whole time. And it takes a really long time to make a poster.
0: Yes. Yeah. And in all aspects of posters take so much time. Um, Obviously, I like to talk, too, so talks are my favorite as well. I think they're a lot less work um, because posters, we've talked ad nauseum about what software we like to use, but it's a really big deal. That's why we talk so much about it. Um, and you have to learn that software, and you have to get your figures just right. And even once you have everything set up, you go to print the stupid thing, and something will be wrong. <laughs> and oh, Inevitably. Exactly. And it's like no one has a poster printer in their – office right next to him, so you know you've had to lug your computer or your thumb drive down somewhere in some basement <laughs> to print off <laughs> this thing and then it's wrong and you got to go back and fix it and it and is some just
1: computer awful. running windows xp or something
0: <laughs> hey um i'm not gonna lie that's how i printed mine off this year <laughs> yeah <laughs> it was an ancient computer
1: <laughs> well but the thing about it posters you interact with a lot more people. So a talk is 15 minutes, and then people come find you later if they remember and if they want. Yes. Uh, Whereas a poster, I was standing at my poster from about 7.45 until 12.30, and I was talking to people the entire time. Mm -hmm. I was exhausted, (laughs) but I got so much feedback. Uh, It was another couple pages in my notebook, because every time somebody says something, I was like, hold on, I'm going to write your name down and that down.
0: Uh, Yes, exactly. So that's the whenever I get assigned a poster and I wanted to talk, I try to... I try to think about that, Um, and actually, sort of, it's quite, as you do your research, you know, you generally present on it more than once as your research progresses, and I often find it a little more, well, I I don't think it's better, but it's more useful to me if I do a poster early on in a research process, because then you do get to talk to a lot of people and get a lot more ideas, uh, as opposed to a talk where, Like John said, you basically have 14 and a half minutes and you're mostly talking the whole time. Right. Um, So, so, you know, I try to sort of do posters first and evolve into talks. Um, I think it sort of helps. Um, Speaking about the poster tube, too, we had a student that left a poster tube in an airport. Oh, no. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Which brings you to on-site printing, which is ridiculous.
1: Yeah, so they will print it. Generally, overnight, if you have it in by noon, uh, for an incredible amount of money. (laughs) (laughs) Yes.
0: I mean, these things are expensive anyway. I mean, with our, you know, no labor costs, no markup, there's still, you know, $50 or so to print, $60, um, generally. And so printing on-site is, you know, three and four times that.
1: Yeah, because you're talking about a piece of paper that's four feet wide and n feet long with n being up to six for AGU.
0: Uh, we had eight at GSA.
1: Whoa.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's big.
1: You get to walk down that poster. <laughs> yeah, you do. <laughs>
0: it's like uh, your entire, you know, life story plus all your research can fit on eight feet. But, um... <laughs> well, you
1: know, I always feel bad about standing in front of my poster and blocking parts of it when there are a lot of people around. So maybe I should just put a person-shaped outline on part of it <laughs> and that'll just be exactly where it. I stand.
0: <laughs> That's a good point. Uh, I like that. Um, I feel like one of the other, and I know you probably suffer from this too, um, one of the other positives about a poster, though, is that once you step on the plane with it, you're finished, like you're done with it. You don't have to worry about tweaking it all the way to the last minute like you would a talk.
1: That's true. There have been a couple cases where I've wished I could correct gross oversights, such as, you know, a misspelling (laughs) or something.
0: Uh, That's true, but uh, it's also sort of liberating because it's the, you know, it is what it is, (laughs) I feel like. So if you're not going to pay the cost to reprint, it just, it is what it is, and there you go. Um, I've certainly strategically placed myself in front of misspellings before. (laughs) Right. (laughs) (laughs) So that's, that's a one way you can overcome that.
1: Yeah. Well, and I mean, so the other thing is, you're here, at least at this conference, for five full days, plus anything that you did before. Uh, Our group did the Exploration Station uh, Public Outreach activity the day before the conference, which we'll we'll have to talk about some other time with some of the other group members. It was a lot of fun. But I've been here for, you know, I'll be here for seven days total.
0: Mm
1: hmm And... It's it's exhausting, and sometimes you have to play hooky for an afternoon.
0: <laughs> yeah, no matter how diehard you are, there's no way you can just consume science for you know sixteen hours a day for seven days, um, and this is why you should strategically choose your conferences based on their location. <laughs>
1: <laughs> we well, should definitely strategically plan, you know, your sessions, because there's not going to be something that you want to see every hour of every day, probably. probably (laughs) yeah they've been doing better about grouping things and the app this year i will say it's better uh i was able to get my online schedule that i made on my computer to sync down to my ipad oh nice the search feature is still pretty awful but it's better so it helps plan the meeting out and actually this is the best use case i found for the apple watch so far is i can look down at my watch tap the schedule thing, and it shows me exactly what room I need to be in next. Oh, and that's nice. Just, and that's not the AGU app. That's the AGU app putting things on my Apple calendar.
0: Ah, okay. That's that's quite good, actually. Because you don't I, have time yeah. to sometimes to, you know, rummage through everything and try to find your phone and everything else and figure out where you are. So that's that's pretty awesome.
1: Yeah, I mean, you get your bag out and, oh, I need to get my laptop, and you try to get on the Wi-Fi, and there's 20,000 people on the Wi-Fi.
0: <laughs> Literally. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. Hmm. That's a that's a good point. Um. I know. I usually don't. Uh. The GSA conference was in Vancouver last year, and the only part of Vancouver I saw was the walk from the hotel to the convention center. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um. So this last time we were in Baltimore, and I made it a point to try to um get out a little bit more, and so it was really cool. So we went and saw. Edgar Allan Poe's grave, um, that was really neat, and a lot of his sort of family, family burial place and, you know, tried to walk along the harbor some more, and so it's really important to do that, too, to take a break, um, so that's always a plus about these meetings, too.
1: Anyway, no, so I, I haven't done a very good job myself about getting away from this meeting because I've actually had a lot of meetings with other people I uh, mm-hmm. actually met with Steve Pastana, one of the research assistants from the Orbital Mechanics, and we had lunch together today. It was fantastic. That's awesome. That's uh, awesome. So, I Orbital Mechanics, folks. Uh,
0: oh, sorry I couldn't be there. <laughs>
1: yeah, no, it was it was a lot of fun. Uh, but there's a lot to do here. I mean, I've gone out to Alcatraz in the past, go out to Fisherman's Wharf. Uh, there's a lot of shopping things and food things out there, uh, food in Chinatown, and yeah. just there's quite a few attractions around, really.
0: Yeah. yeah the San Francisco is, area is quite rich in anything you would want to do. You know, we always try to at least get down to the, the wharf and, you know, ride a, ride a trolley and do all that fun stuff. So um, those are always big pluses. Like I said, AGU, the AGU meeting of the Americas, which is every couple of years, you know, we went to Brazil, and that was just unparalleled. <laughs> um, it was held at Foz de Iguaçu which is one of the seven wonders of the world, uh, the waterfalls there. So that was super awesome.
1: (laughs) Oh, wow. (laughs) Well, in February, I'm going to be in Mexico for a slow-slip conference, so we will get to try to do our first international recording.
0: Ah, excellent. Yeah, that will be fun.
1: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But, (laughs) no. So I mean, that's pretty much what's been going on at the AGU meeting. There's a lot of exciting science, but it's so field-specific, I don't really feel like it's appropriate to talk about because – I'm interested in slow earthquakes, but not many other people are. Not and at all. <laughs> uh, you know, you could talk about paleomagnetism from other conferences, but they're also very narrow people, very narrow set of people interested in that. But
0: <laughs> we're a special breed, right. <laughs>
1: but I did give a talk this morning on podcasting that talked about our podcast and the orbital mechanics. And it was an incredible amount of fun. had a, a great audience of educators and outreach specialists. That were there, and uh, thanks for anybody that listens that was there. I know I've talked to several people around the conference that have said, "Oh yeah, I, I do listen to your show," but um, it was impossible to tell who was there as as happens during these sessions. But it was a lot of fun, and I will try to put the uh, the slides and things somewhere, so in some case you're interested, you can see them.
0: Um. So speaking of podcasting, did you say something happened to you in the airport? <laughs>
1: Oh yeah. So, <laughs> um, as I mentioned, I have my road podcaster microphone here. I'm holding it in my hands and I put it in my Timbuktu bag, my shoulder bag, and just went through security line. And I saw my first bag come through no problem. And then that bag came through, got pulled out, went back around, went back through, sat in there for a while, and then got put on the special little cart that's for additional screening. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so whose bag is this it's mine I get called over they actually pull up the x-ray from my bag that the x-ray technician took and pointed to this long object long cylindrical object and said sir can you identify this and uh <laughs> I said oh yeah I said that's a microphone and <laughs> Uh, The the security agent kind of laughed and said, oh, my bet was water filter. Wow. (laughs) uh, The problem is this microphone is very heavy if you've ever held one. Uh, It's a pretty dense metal case, and the x-ray actually didn't penetrate, so it just was a big black blob on the
0: x-ray. Oh, wow. (laughs) That's actually pretty interesting.
1: Yeah. So they were right to be terrified, but it, it caused me a minor delay, and I'm sure it will on the way back.
0: Oh, yeah. Um, Well, I got got called by name over the loudspeakers at the Inverness Airport in Scotland. And they made me open my bag and pull out a rock that was in it because they thought it was a dinosaur egg. So they wanted me to tell them about it. (laughs) (laughs) So, always amazed.
1: (laughs) Well, you know, outreach comes in the strangest of places.
0: It's absolutely true. I talked to that lady about geology for 20 minutes there.
1: You know, and I, I saw somebody had tweeted a picture, there has been significant security here, I'm assuming because of the increased terror threat, uh, but the San Francisco police have also been out in addition to the security guards at the conference center, and the uh, somebody had tweeted a picture of a San Francisco police officer drinking coffee, and they were explaining their poster to him, and they were saying oh. outreach can't really happen anywhere. <laughs>
0: That's exceptional. Uh-huh. <laughs> How awesome.
1: wow (laughs) Mm -hmm. but uh yeah so it's been a great meeting so far Uh, i've talked to several people that i think would be excellent to have on the show so hopefully we can have some guests after the first Mm -hmm. of the year excellent Uh, yeah but if the interest of not getting too long i know it's very late where you are because we're two hours apart now yeah. Uh, the wrong way <laughs>
0: yeah neither one of us is allowed to move more than a time zone away from each other
1: <laughs> right uh yeah so i guess we should move on to everybody's favorite segment of the show and i have sound effects courtesy agu uh, <laughs> fun paper friday
0: that was not nearly as good as the cowbell <laughs>
1: Well, you, you haven't found the cowbell yet.
0: Uh, that's true. That's true. It's <laughs> somewhere around here. Um, so what,
1: on, what on earth did you find? This was a strange one.
0: <laughs> um, so I think this came across my desk last year because I, uh, my friend Stacy is super interested in plants, and we talk a lot about botany, and we read a lot of botany books. Like, we couldn't get any nerdier, right? Um, <laughs> right. But uh, it came, came across it again. In a National Geographic article, which we've linked in the show notes, and everybody loves mimosas, right? They're those, not the champagne and orange juice, <laughs> but the plant. <laughs> I mean, the, they're
1: the they're the plant that does the the weird leaf curling thing, right?
0: Right, exactly. So you know, plants are just these things that hang around, but mimosas are cool because when you touch them, you know, um, or do anything disturbing to it, it folds its little leaves in. Um, and it's a defensive gesture to protect itself, basically, from getting eaten, right? Um, and so these sensitive mimosas, you know, instantly do this. And then um, whenever the, whatever scary to the plant passes, you know, their little leaves unfurl and they go back to photosynthesizing as normal. Um, <laughs> the best part of this link is the, is the experimental apparatus, which we will discuss here in a minute. But um, so... Well, and- so
1: in addition to the actual paper, you linked in an article that's by Robert Krolwich, which is the one of the Radiolab co-hosts, and he actually drew a lot of stuff in this article. It's yeah. worth taking a look at, if for no other reason than to see hand drawings.
0: Uh, yes, exactly. <laughs> um, it's spectacular, and you have to keep watching it, as we'll you'll find out here in a minute when we talk about it. Um, so basically, well, it's an exceptional article because it starts out saying, Uh, There's this plant I heard about that had a really bad afternoon a few years ago. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So these researchers have taken these mimosa plants and basically tried to figure out, you know, whether they can learn behavior. Because obviously that's a huge thing for animal studies, right? We do that all the time. Um, And the paper is titled, Experience Teaches Plants to Learn Faster and Forget Slower in Environments Where It Matters.
1: Well, but this seems, at, at least at first glance, when you first told me what this paper was about when you sent it, uh, I thought, this is crazy. Plants don't have brains. They don't have any way to remember. There's no real neural connection. There are a bunch of cells squished together that are basically robots.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And biologists, you know where to send the hate mail.
0: <laughs> John R. com. <Lehman.com. laughs> right. <laughs> um, but it's not true.
1: No, not at all. And this, is, <laughs> this turned out to be really fascinating. So hold off on sending those emails just yet.
0: <laughs> um, so these experimenters did a lot of things with light conditions because obviously, you know, that's where plants thrive, right? Um, and so they stressed out mimosas plants by doing, you know, dark rooms and then you know slightly increase in light but that's not the part we're going to talk about because that's not the cool part that is um illustrated (laughs) um but what they did to this mimosa is they made this little apparatus and they dropped him (laughs) it's only six (laughs) inches like he's in a little pot and they dropped him about six inches and every time they would drop the mimosa he'd curl up his little leaves when he hit the bottom right because something bad was happening and it didn't know whether it should be defensive and protect itself or not. And so it would curl up its leaves, and they would do this for a long time.
1: <laughs> and it's, this is uh, this is where Robert Kurlowich has his hand-drawn things <laughs> that are made into GIFs in that article that are great.
0: Uh, yeah, it's spectacular. Um, so they did this for a long time. And every time, the mimosa would curl itself up until... And, you know, this is not like dropping it where potting soil is flying everywhere. (laughs) Like it's the plant wasn't actually being harmed at all. And so after the plant learned that it wasn't being harmed, it would not curl up its leaves defensively anymore.
1: And my first reaction to that was, oh, well, this is just whatever chemical mechanism causes the leaves to curl is out of out of reactants. It's exactly it's just not going to work and if you let it sit for a while same exact behavior was was my guess and I was wrong
0: (laughs) exactly yes exactly I think that's I think that's what everyone reading this would assume I mean I guess if you think about these sort of things is that it's used up it's reactor and so you know whatever but that's not true because they could immediately um expose the plant to a stimulus and it would curl up so basically the plant learned, you know, that this drop isn't going to kill me. So I'm not going to be defensive about it anymore. So it clearly wasn't tired, right? It, it knew that the dropping wasn't hurting it. So it wasn't going to be defensive. And then, you know, any other stimulus that they would then, you know, poke the plant and it would curl up. And so that didn't explain it. The only explained explanation is that the plant learned this behavior
1: and then they did the interesting test that's the next question i would have had was what if you wait and then drop it again like wait days yeah does it still remember
0: it still remembers after a month yeah (laughs) (laughs) um i thought this was interesting too because the researcher noted that bees forget what they've discovered in just a few days (laughs) Right. And this mimosa plant, a month later, you could drop it, and it still would not curl up.
1: <laughs> which which is amazing, because this is something that we would normally associate with an animal, right? Learned behavior.
0: Uh, right, exactly. And, you know, we're not biologists, clearly, but um, a lot of the verbiage in this paper, you know, you could replace the word plant with animal, because they're talking about, you know, habituation. So the plant getting used to the stimulus and learning from it and later recognizing it. And so you're basically training this plant, not like you would train a plant to grow a certain way, but you're training it to respond or not respond to a stimulus. And it's also held in this long-term memory, which is not really something we talked about. So yes, plants don't have a brain, but clearly all the parts of the plant are communicating in this manner that you would generally reserve when you talk about animals.
1: Yeah. And I mean, plants don't have neural networks that they can alter in any way, as far as I know. Uh, in fact, I, if I remember high school biology, AP biology, right, that they mainly use um, chemical signals.
0: Right. Exactly. So I,
1: I don't know if this is some kind of concentration that becomes the new norm and stays there or uh, it'd be interesting to know the mechanism, which I think is obviously what the, the follow on work is going to do. Uh, But it totally changes my perspective of plants as being, you know, robots. Maybe they're slightly alterable, dynamic programmed
0: robots. (laughs) Exactly. Um, Taking that whole, yeah, you know, requirement of a brain to learn things away, it certainly challenges how I, not just us who don't study these things, but clearly people that do study them, it challenges how they how they view it too so it's uh it's kind of neat i thought um it's a little weird and obviously those great uh gifs are the highlight (laughs) right (laughs) um so yeah i thought we'd step out of our physical science uh hard physical science world and go towards some living things for this fun paper
1: (laughs) yeah no i think it was a it was a great find and it's another thing that Stuff like this that may sound a little bit crazy uh, but then gets proved out is why we come to conferences like this, (laughs) to hear about it.
0: Exactly.
1: (laughs) So next week we should be back to normal. I think we will both be at least in places where I have a mic stand and a real desk and we'll actually be in the same time zone.
0: (laughs) Oh, yeah, that's exciting.
1: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So until then, uh, we – would love it if you go on iTunes and rate us because it helps other people find the show that may like it just like you do. And we also welcome you to send any feedback. You can do that uh, in audio comments and emails, however you're most comfortable. And Shannon, where could they send that?
0: Oh, well, they can send it to show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. Unless you're a botanist, we don't want to hear from you. And <laughs> <laughs> you can find us on Twitter at Don't Panic Geo. And John is at geo underscore Lehman. And I am at Shannon Doolin.
1: And until next week, remember don't panic.
0: It's not an exact science.